Hey guys, I hope you had a great New Year's and made it through Omicron in one piece. It's been a while since I released a new episode. I've been kind of slacking on that front, but I promise this episode totally makes up for the wait. Things have just been super busy these past few months, and we've been slammed with a bunch of really exciting projects. I'm jumping right back into it with an episode that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. Christopher Bowder, the founder of White Void, was one of the people that I had in mind when I started the Luminous Arts podcast in the first place. I was in Berlin for the Touch Designer Summit when I first saw his work. It was a performance called Scalar, and it was being shown in this old abandoned transit station. It was just crazy to me that thousands of people would gather to watch a performance centered around lighting and visuals. The music was just a supporting element, not even the focus of the show. White Void creates some of the most amazing light performances I've ever seen. They combine kinetic lighting, lasers, and music in a totally unique way. It's like he's using light as a fluid to fill a three-dimensional space. Our conversation wanders, like conversations on this podcast tend to do. We start by talking about our youths and how growing up in the techno scene in Berlin really shaped his artistic path. Both of us spent our early years exploring the techno scenes in the places where we grew up, which led us to experimenting with the visual arts. Even though we grew up in different times and on different continents, there's a lot of shared experience between us that was really interesting to explore. I've been waiting for years to have this conversation, and I'm excited for the next time Chris and I can meet in person. I think you guys are really going to dig this conversation. I know that I did. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. It's, it's good to, to meet you face to face. Yeah, very nice to talk. Yeah, so how are... Uh... How are things in Berlin right now? Things must be opening up again. Things are starting to become more, uh, yeah, more open. Omicron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're at the peak now of this Omicron wave, but everyone is already talking about, uh, yeah, opening up clubs again. We can have uh, concert venues uh, inside with 4,000 people again, outside up to 10,000. So that means soccer is back. The yeah, Germans' favorite pastime, so everyone's happy about that. So I think it will it will ease up very fast now because we realize that hospitals are not filling up, and it's yeah, the wave is big, but it's not it's not as dangerous anymore as it was before. No, it, absolutely. I think that um, you know the United States is kind of a weird place because you know half of, essentially we're a bunch of different countries. You know, and every one of those exactly. countries has like a different idea about what it means to to you know to be to be safe. And uh, yeah, I was talking yeah, to a friend true. about this yesterday. It's almost like, you know, the 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 um the the procedures and the the rituals around COVID vary from place to place depending on on what the social consensus of uh right of of you know risk tolerances. So here uh, in California, uh, people. People take it very, very seriously. Everybody masks and everybody's really serious about it. Um, but, um, you know, you go a few states over and it's like COVID doesn't exist and has never existed. And uh, it's really, it's just this, these set of like social parameters that you, that you kind of have to abide by. Yeah. Uh, it's the same in Germany, even though we are much smaller, we have this uh, subdivisions and also the South is much more cautious. And the more to the north, and especially the more to the east you go, uh, the former East German part, uh, the, they're they're much more careless. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. And then individually, you know, I'm in Berlin, which is a melting pot of people from all all over the world. So you also see there some people like being in home office now for two years, and others like myself, I don't care very much and just take the risk, but have more fun and more freedom, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you say East and West, uh, like the East and the West, does that, there was a much more stark division between East Berlin and West Berlin, right? And and like culturally, that was like, yeah, yeah. you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, that was, that line was still kind of dissolving. Um, do you find that that's still like a, like a, like a divide? Is there still like a cultural difference no. between the two halves of the city or is it pretty... Today, for me, for me, not really. I don't know how how other people think. And I'm not from Berlin. I'm from I'm from the west of Germany, uh, the the southwest actually. But um, for me, it's kind of I don't I don't feel it anymore. Also, the people I'm friends with, they're from all over the place, and also a lot of them from East Berlin or East Germany. But for me personally, it doesn't play any role anymore. And it's also really hard to see in the city where actually um, the wall was because it's growing over basically with buildings that are built uh, in, the, in the death zone and so on. So it's more and more disappearing, which is a good thing, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's like an inevitable thing. Anytime there's a divide that, that, that where the boundaries break down, you know, that, that slowly erases over time. I was listening yeah. to a really interesting podcast about the the birth of techno and electronic music and how yeah. really it was it was this this partnership between Berlin and Detroit and there was a lot of cross pollination yeah. between those two cities yeah. and then in Berlin you know you had these vast industrial neighborhoods which were full of um, buildings that could be used uh, for like the physical locations for these events and that was kind of like the fertile, the fertile ground that allowed the the Berlin techno scene to grow and and spread. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly like like that. I mean, the fall of the wall kind of spawned, um, the, yeah, the development, not directly the development, but it created those empty spaces. Also, myself, when I moved to Berlin in '97. Uh, there's still a lot of empty or cheap spaces where I, as a student with my friends, we could have our kind of first studio and experimental place. And it was the same for the clubs. There were so many empty buildings that could just be occupied. And in in every street, in every, I don't know, fifth building where I lived, there was a bar in, in the basement, just kind of not official, but there were empty spaces and they were used by people and to do creative things. And this is still what, what, driving Berlin today, I think. What's the creative force behind Berlin is available space, affordable housing, all these kind of things that were attracting creative people from first from the West of Germany, then from Europe, then from the US and from all over the planet. So this this is still the, the wall, the void that the falling of the, the coming down of the wall left, that is still being the motor of the Berlin cultural scene today. Yeah, so you moved you moved to to Berlin kind of during during this period where electronic music and that culture really it's 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 the culture that surrounded it was very underground. It was very totally. new and pioneering. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I was you know my I my youth was spent in kind of the same uh, different place, but kind of the same um, environment. I was very into the electronic music scene, very yeah. into rave culture when it was coming up, and and it was still very underground. And I, I kind of attribute that to where my interest in new media arts came from, because, you know, I, I read um, the article in, in Arc Magazine. It's a fucking great article, by the way. Um, <laughs> but 
it gave me some insight into like your mentality behind the work that you do. And it, it's, mm-hmm. and I'm just curious, like, do you, do you think that being in a place where there was so much like counterculture and counter, um, like new ideas blossoming, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like not only was that permission for, for musicians to get creative, but it was also permission for visual artists to get creative, right? And for totally. me, that was VJing. Yeah. And yeah, I came yeah, at totally. this through the, the visual art scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What yeah, do you think about that? Exactly the same for me. I grew up, uh, I'm, I, I was socialized in the, in the Berlin techno scene. So I was a, a techno kid even before I came to Berlin. And I was diving into that head on. And I, I came to Berlin to study at art school. And and the main thing for me about art school was to meet the other the other freaks there, and every yeah. night one of them was either VJing somewhere or DJing somewhere or opening a bar or decorating a club or doing anything related to club and and under underground culture mostly electronic music and techno um, especially. So I had like fantastic parties in the craziest places. I mean, if I if I tell people today like hey in this shoe shop there was one of the craziest first wave drum and bass clubs in berlin and no, no one believes that today anymore and it was such a crazy and vast kind of creative explosion at that time and especially re- related for myself to vjing because at that time you know i, mean, we, I had the mixer i had huge like monitors and was uh, yeah man. lugging Did around you all that stuff well. to, like half a half of a small truck full just to do one VJ set at night. So I became interested yeah. in uh, in um, when when I got my my first my own computer and then later laptop. I became interested in okay, can we not get that into uh, into a computer and have a software to do that? And I started creating my own first VJ software like Resolume and all this stuff that wasn't existing at that point. They also started out. Some of them even also started as uh, programming in flash or in director at that time and then later on they changed to a more uh, serious platform and i also had my first real-time 3d application that i was programming myself because i was creating most of my vj stuff in 3d anyway so i was like why can i not directly mix it in 3d why do i have to go through making a time-based video out of it putting it on a tape and then playing it back on a video with a video mixer and that kind of really triggered my my creative mind and my thinking and projection mapping started like first with one wall and two walls and all the walls and then i was thinking okay why why only the walls can we not like map the rest of the place or like 3d objects and so on so for me really that was kind of the driving force the techno scene especially the lighting and the decoration of the clubs that was the most important thing for me and that kind of yeah is still my inspiration till today that's cool man you know i uh, i went from vjing into the world of uh, concert touring <clears throat> excuse me yeah. and um you know it was around that time when the lines between video and lighting started to blur and they call yeah. that convergence right when all of a sudden it's like you got a pixel it could be a light it could be a pixel on a screen exactly. it could be a projection yeah. it doesn't yeah. matter And, um, you know, that was kind of the, that was my crucible. That was where I learned, really learned the tools, um, that my company still uses today, you know, in in the architecture world, but it's, uh, it, it was a really interesting time when projection mapping was first starting to become 
you know, people were starting to become conscious of it and like the potential. It's like, okay, we're designing video in these 3D environments. These 3D environments, we're skinning them in, in the 3D environment. Why not take that skin and project it yeah. onto real objects? Yeah, and exactly. It was like a magic trick. Do you remember like yeah. when, when projector mapping first hit the scene? People were like, what the mm. fuck is that? Yeah. I also I wrote my first like a 3D projection mapping kind of simple tool in, in director at that time. And I had some cubes like uh, built from wood. I had stacked them on the floor and I was projection mapping all the surfaces of those of those cubes from, from multiple sides and didn't really have a serious application for it. I just had this idea that video should come off the wall and into the space and onto objects and so on. And then I was in contact at that time with uh, Joanny uh, Le Mercier from AntiVJ. He wrote yeah. me about like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm into this stuff too. Can I use your software? And I was like, well, I wish, but it's a pile of crap. You know, it's, I'm the only one who can still operate it. And then a short time later, uh, AntiVijay basically defined all the projection mapping techniques that everyone is still using today, you know, on the buildings. Like the building is crumbling, you see the wireframe of the building, uh, virtual light is flying around it, and all those things that are still the basis of many projection mappings today. They came up with that stuff within like one year or two years or something like that. And well, I, I think myself, once the idea took hold, once that idea took hold, it yeah. just took somebody to put the pieces together. Exactly. And, and yeah. yeah. So that's cool that you programmed your own environments and you were yeah, doing yeah. that. I, I was super early, but I had no application. So I was on, all the time more interested in creating the tools, but uh, I didn't think of uh, mapping the whole house. I was just more interested in objects and stuff like that. And also yeah. for me, it was always interesting because I studied... Uh, interactive art and, and interaction design that it that it be with sensors that I can inter interact with the projection mapping. For me, it wasn't only about having a time-based projection map video uh, thing running, but I wanted to interact with those surfaces. That was the direction that, that I was interested in. Yeah. So you're, you're, you've been coding and building your own tools from the beginning. Well, I tried. So I studied that in art school and I learned coding, different languages and also microprocessors and so on. But super early on, I realized that my talent is extremely limited in coding. <laughs> so already in art school, I hired my best colleague there to kind of start coding for me. And that's basically how, how I started White Void and what I'm doing today, that I realized that I'm really good in having the ideas and kind of project managing the whole thing and giving the creative input, but I'm not good in execution side of things. So I hired people for doing the coding, doing the 3D, doing all that stuff. And I basically, I'm basically more like a director in the sense of a movie director. Well, I think that it takes both parts, right? I think that there are different levels that you can look at a problem from. And right. you really need somebody to look at a problem from a high level, yeah. a top down level. Yeah. And then you need people who can put their nose into the weeds to, to tackle specific exactly. problems. I'm very yeah, much like yeah. that as well. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a matter of putting the right pieces together. And I love yeah. that, you know, like I love talking to people and yeah. I love getting to know people's superpowers. Yeah, it's right, almost like right. yeah. finding the right people to put into these projects um, yeah. is in the what end, what makes them come together together yeah. what, what, what did you start out with what was your first like coding environment or coding language programming language i was really javascript 
you know, Java, yeah, uh, okay. again, I'm more of a hardware person. I'm, I'm more yeah. of an electrical engineer by trade. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, I, a lot of it is self-taught, um, but I'm, I'm also a designer, you know, like a visual mm-hmm. designer. So, you know, I went to school uh, for, for the visual arts and then I moved into show production. And here in the United States, there's a, a school that, uh, that offers a degree in show production and Oh, when really? I graduated that's, with a degree cool. in visual arts, yeah. I ended up working retail. Right? It was like a shitty, shitty job. And um, at the same time, I was obsessed with, uh, with, with visual design and new media arts. So yeah. like, I'm going to go back to school and figure out how to make a living doing this. And that's how I ended up uh, going to school for show production. And after that, I toured. I toured for seven years as a, wow. as a visual designer and a lighting designer. Uh-huh. Um, but... Um, yeah, my company started when I moved to the Bay Area, and I had uh, I'd broken my ankle on tour, and uh-huh. uh, they kicked me off the tour. It was, it was a very traumatic experience, you know, because uh-huh. I like, lost my, my career. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, I was becoming more obsessed with taking those tools and applying them to architecture because stages are very boring. You know, like the stage is a very boring square place. It's made Ooh. out of the same pieces every time. And, yeah, at um, least it was. At least it was. I think it's breaking up a little bit lately. I think you're right because yeah. I think that there are more people who uh, are bringing new creative ideas to the yeah. stage, yeah. right? And, and applying like new shapes and new patterns. Um, but for the longest time, it was based on truss, you know, sticks Correct. of truss, which is different, yeah. different different forms of square. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's 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 basically how I ended up here, but I've always had a real passion for new media arts and the people that's always been my community, you know? So it's, it's, um, conversations with people like you, um, and, you know, just peers, it, it, it it makes you feel less alone, you know, because like, it can be very isolating, you know, like you're doing all these new things. No one really knows like what it is that you do. They see the work, but it's like, like, it can be very isolating. Yeah. Um, yeah I had that, you know, that, that what I said before, when I came to art school that I met all the other freaks, that was like a revelation to me, you know, because before I was this, this kind of strange kid, you know, I had this interest always was tinkering around with lights and doing art stuff and so on, but I'm a, from a very small village. So you're basically the only one, or maybe in school you meet one other kid or something like that. But then, when I finally came to art school, like, like that totally made sense to me because they were, they were all like me, even worse, or even worse <laughs> is better, you know, like even more, more out there or more like, uh, yeah, even, even more talented, uh, some of them. And that was really for me, like fantastic because I could relate to all those people and fo- found a, a like-minded group while, you know, when you're in school, the group is like, okay, you're with the punks or the poppers or the electro kids or whatever right. but that's that's the non i didn't fit any of those groups you know so yeah, later in art school i was like okay i'm 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 like a an art group guy and that was that was yeah. really interesting to see that there's others like me uh, interested in the same kind of stuff so how did you meet your business partner and is he still your business partner i read in this no. uh, this article that you met you met somebody in college you guys started white void together yeah Mm-hmm. Did that continue or no um uh he even invented the the name white void we were basically just uh study colleagues 
uh, we met during study and we were also hanging out afterwards and made projects together and built some VR stuff uh, together and so on. We were like just interested in that. And the funny thing was I, we both started in the same semester in art school in the digital class, but there were no computers, which was ridiculous. You know, we were supposed to learn coding and I don't know, Photoshop and all that stuff. But uh, the school had no computers because they just started out this new department. And before they had this like super old stuff like the Silicon Graphics work workstations, you know, the Onyx, sure. this kind of really hardcore stuff. And they wanted to change over to like a modern equipment, like, you know, like this blue uh, G3 Max or these plastic ones or the iMac. <laughs> right. that, but they didn't, they hadn't gotten them. So for the whole semester, we wouldn't have any computer hardware. So we were like, okay. So what did you I do? Mean, yeah, exactly. We need to, we all called the parents and we were like, hey, we need computers, send money or something. So each of us That's got hilarious. as much as the parents could spend. And we went together to a shop, got a discount because we buy a bought like, I don't know, six of those Macs and monitors we bought on the flea market monitors and stuff like that. And we found a super cheap space that we could renovate ourselves and the rent was super low because we did the renovation and that's how we started uh, to work together and have a space together and kind of like a studio where we would experiment and we would sublet to other guys, some art architects and hang out together there. And that's how basically it naturally developed into a studio where we did jobs together. But then wow, at some man, point- I bet you that was, really, that was really motivating because in essence, you had to create your own, you created your own <laughs> environment to teach yourself. And yeah, I think that, like in the end, that was funny. Yeah. Maybe if you had had computers, it wouldn't have been such a motivating factor. Exactly. Know? That that's exactly what I think. We were basically forced to do that. And uh, uh, later, and like funny thing is, I went to give a lecture at my old class uh, two weeks ago. So I returned twenty one years later. And these kids, of course, they all hang out in in school the whole day because there's the 3D printer and all the stuff you need. Uh, computers, of course, you have laptops now, but at that time there was no the laptop wasn't really affordable. I think so. We bought all desktop computers because we needed also the video graphics cards and stuff like that. Yeah, laptops so, were definitely not powerful enough back back yeah, then. Yeah, not to powerful, do, and to do I most. think we could we couldn't afford them. There was this first generation of the this black um, Apple laptop that looked like a pillow. So that one was available, but we couldn't afford it. And yes, it wasn't, wasn't powerful enough for 3D stuff and so on. So yeah, that was kind of the, the, the start of, of working together. And then we got some first jobs from one of our professors who was a designer for uh, museum exhibitions. And he yeah. wanted some interactive installations. At that time, there was no uh, multi-touch screen or stuff like you could use for that. So we had to invent all this. We had built our own tracking with infrared cameras and stuff like that. So the, the professor saw that and he hired us to do a job for um, the Jewish Museum here in Berlin. So we thought like, oh, okay, we don't look professional enough as two students. So we need to, we wanted to pretend we're an agency. So we were looking for a name and, and my colleague was like, hmm. What are we working with? You know, uh, a writer starts with a blank page with a white, white blank paper. And we were like, okay, we don't even have paper. You know, we start with, with absolutely nothing. So we're okay. That's white, white, nothing. So we came up with white void as the, or he came up with the name white void for I mean, agency. Great name. <laughs> we just called ourselves that made a website and so on. So we started together. 
and we all we also moved to two more places together uh, before we split up because he married a girl from also from art school who was studying with us and she was interested in more graphics design and book book design and so on so they kind of started their own small office together uh, but we're still very good friends today and we meet up and uh, yeah but we discontinued to to I, I went more in the direction of spatial design and interactive stuff and so on and he moved in the direction of uh, video more we both studied video and uh, um, creative coding in art school and he then went more in the video direction i went more to the coding so he's doing uh, grading for movies today and stuff like that he's working with my brother actually he was a movie maker oh wow it's a small yeah. world yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when like when when two people have a vision you know, I started DA by myself and then yeah. a business partner joined and then that business partner left. But it's almost like, you know, it's almost like this thing that you just have to push up the hill. And mm -hmm. it's like you have this, it's almost like a, this, like it's, it's an impulse that you just have to express yourself in this certain way. Yeah. And sometimes it's, uh, yeah, sometimes people join, join the, join the mission and they, they help you push the ball up the hill. And sometimes it's just you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so when he left, like when he left, did you, did you have other people on the team or did you just go back to being you for a while? Yeah. At that moment I was very, um, how to say, um, yeah, destroyed or desperate or something. So, um, yeah, I still also continued to work with him for a while, but I was for a moment, I think I was alone. So I was always used to have multiple people share a space. Uh, then for a moment I was alone, so I had I, I rented another space um, to have the office there, which was an apartment actually above a, a dinner kebab shop. <laughs> so it smelled uh -huh. all day long like the kebabs, uh, and I had two rooms, and I felt so stupid because I was like, "Well, why do I have two rooms? I'm alone, you know." So I locked the door <laughs> to the second room, and I was sitting there kind of alone and did my projects and hired freelancers and friends for doing the stuff and then at some point a guy wrote me like hey can i intern for you and i was like intern well i don't even have any employees you know what what should i do with an intern and he was very persistent about it i was like hey i have no money and it's, it's not a company i'm alone and the guy was like well i don't care i'm coming you know so he came and <laughs> he was sitting opposite of me and then I had my first intern and then a second one and for a while I worked a lot with interns they, they stayed between two months or some of them they prolonged then after the studies was finished stayed a year or two and then it naturally developed at the, at some point I hired the first guy permanently um, yeah. while, while I was still a one person kind of not really a registered company and then at some point I, I registered the company actually very late before it was just a, a person person business or I don't know how to translate it in English. Yeah, no, 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 just a single person doing a thing. Yeah. So I'm curious when when your your when your thing split off into white void and kinetic lights because they're, they're very much part of the, like when I when I look at the work that you do it is all it's it's very much based around that that kinetics. But uh, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to separate the hardware um, from like the design portion. Yeah, I mean, that was also um, 
a thought that I had at some point that I should split it off to also encourage other agencies or other designers to use the hardware because I had to started to develop this, this motor systems, you know, the, the, the winches and light elements and so on. So I used them for my own stuff and for my own interests, of course, but I wanted to professionalize it into a serious product. And uh, that's why I split off Kinetic Lights as a brand, basically. It's still the same company, actually, in the background, but I split it off to encourage others. Now we're actually kind of, uh, we have these different brands, but we are kind of communicating openly that it's all the same, kind of, because we also realized those a lot of clients of Kinetic Lights were also interested in having a show created by White Void or by myself. So in, oh, in the end, we, we always ended up doing it all together anyways. So we have these different websites and so on, but lately we also started to cross-communicate that we're actually connected to the sister companies and we have kind of the employees and some of them are shared, but some of them also separate, like Dark Matter now, the exhibition space, there, there's different employees than at White Void, for example. But Kinetic yeah. Lights and White Void, they're pretty much sharing the employees because, I mean, the engineers more belong to Kinetic Lights, but sometimes White Void is also needing engineering for uh, custom developments, and then there's the same engineers doing that. So it's more to the outside than to the inside, those those splits. Well, it's cool to 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 it's cool to hear about how your team has grown. You know, we're we're also in a period where we're growing fast right now. It's really exciting because there's a lot more energy and a lot more ideas um, yeah. involved in the company. And um, you know, we we also have one foot in hardware and one foot in software. It's kind of a difficult uh, a difficult bridge to 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 straddle. You know, or like yeah. like a you've got these two these two pieces which are kind of kind of disparate but they feed into the same end products right yeah and uh i've been thinking a lot about like maybe it makes more sense to to split the hardware apart from the software but in the end it all goes into the same projects yeah. so you know for right yeah, now it's we're just we are we bill ourselves as a design studio and, and we mm. focus on the, the design um that also does engineering you know, and sometimes people come to us and they're like, oh, hey, we've got this project and we need somebody to figure out how to make it work. And they already have yeah. the idea. And then somebody, sometimes people come to us and they, they just want the idea and then they want to yeah. develop it themselves. Yeah, it's um, the same thing. Like we're also like selling or renting our winches to a dry hire to third parties now. So it's yeah. more, and more that someone else is even installing it and then they have their own programming and so on. So we are more than only involved on the technical side. And then is there are also requests that are the total opposite where they're like, no, no, we want, we are, we don't care what you're using. We want your art piece. And then they specifically request one of our art pieces, which of course is totally made of kinetic lights parts, our hardware, but they don't care about that. So we, we also sell it as one, uh, one art piece and not like it's 150 motors plus 120 LED lights and so on. So it's oh. also kind of wrapped um, differently. So we are kind of in so many kind of different models that sometimes we're also getting a bit lost. What is what's actually the core of what we're doing? I don't think there is any core. It's like it's more like a swarm of things that we're actually working on. Well, that's that's actually it's a really good it's a good point to hit on because, um, mm. you know, sometimes I also feel like what, what is like, what, 
encapsulates what we do, you know, and it is, yeah. it's a lot of different things. Um, and it is kind of like this, this collection of ideas that come together to produce these visual installations. Um, but from the outside, right, from my perspective, you guys seem very um, like installation based. You know, you do all of these these installations at uh, like Craftwork and the Atonal yeah. Festival. Um, yeah. You guys seem like you have one foot firmly in the fine arts. I'm wondering That's like how yeah. is it kind of like a driving force behind your your company or like one is that one of the the main outlets that you see for your work? Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely one of of my personal interests to create art. I mean, I have uh, I have two talents. I'm always saying, <laughs> one is uh, having ideas, an abundance of ideas, like ideas for many lifetimes, basically, and the other one is like I can tell good stuff from bad stuff, like gold from shit. I know what's good yeah. and what, what's bad, and that these are my only two talents, basically. And um, so I have a lot of ideas, so I need output. And if I'm always waiting for a client request where one of my ideas maybe might fit, sometimes I'm waiting forever to kind of uh, apply something where I think it's a great idea, but how can you sell to a client? Like, hey, I have this idea, I, I want to fly mirrors and then I will bounce lights off and this will be a great emotional uh, experience. And they will be like, uh, I don't know, can you, uh, how do how does that work? And they're skeptical, you know, so I have all these great show stuff, but where's the outlet? So at them. some point, yeah, exactly. So at some point I, I decided to just create stuff myself and see if anyone would be interested. And that kind of That's was feeding, really... feeding back into, into more concrete assignments from clients. So how do you, how do you fund those concept pieces or like, how do you make those a reality? <clears throat> inevitably we'll we'll take paying projects and we'll use the profit from those paying projects yeah. to fund kind of more abstract conceptual exactly. work that we do yeah exactly is that kind of how it works for you guys because yes. you know scalar scalar was actually the first piece that i saw uh -huh. um of yours in berlin when i was visiting and yeah. uh well I, I just love how it is an art piece for art's sake is yeah. not like you know it is not like nike present scalar it's like <laughs> no this is this is this is a visual performance um created by by white Boyd and, yeah. and it's meant for public consumption you sell tickets and mm -hmm. it's, it's a brilliant piece and yeah. uh what what struck me from the beginning was how you know in in much of europe you can have these visual performances that stand on their own like you can have mm. a light festival where the lighting is the main draw it's not like a music festival with some lighting attached it's like yeah. there's a lighting performance with some music attached and mm. that that's a totally that's a very unique concept um it doesn't really exist that much here in the united states uh, yeah i was i was always interested in lifting the, the visual side on the same level as for example in the clubs the dj and there was a, a moment in berlin in time where the vj was promoted on the flyer or on the advertisement as much as the dj for, well, for a short brief moment States. five years it was, maybe it, it was super important and we went to go to some shows because of the vj and not because of the dj who was playing but that kind of disappeared rather quickly and the, the the vj again was the background 
they did great art, but no one really cares. And that's also still the way it is in many clubs today. If you go to any of the big clubs in Vegas or so on, they all have a VJ, but no one cares about him. There's like Steve Aoki is the, the, the man of the night and stuff like that. So I really didn't well, I like that. I thought it should, it should be more on the same level because what are you looking at today? If you're looking at a, a big DJ playing, it's a fantastic light show mostly. And then there's this little guy hopping up and down and pretending to kind of mix the tracks. Some of them might do, but the visual side is becoming so big and so important that I thought, why not, I mean, put them on eye level. And that's what I'm doing with my shows. I'm asking great musicians like Robert Henke from Ableton, uh, Monolake, Cunning Ray and so on. And we do a collaboration. It's an eye to eye level kind of joint development. And, and we also present it as such. And this, that's basically my aim. And I think it, already also happening in, in in the in the bigger scheme like a-listers are starting to at least name the guys who did their visuals or specifically hire someone who has a name on its own for uh, doing visual art so i think this, that this development is it's slow but it's i think it's getting there that at some point the two names might be on the same level well that's always been that's the eternal struggle you know, from yeah. when I was DJing, it was always like, we're performing, the DJ is performing, what gives? Like, why are we not on this yeah. wire? I remember exactly. that. And there yeah. are still people who are fighting that battle today. And it's like, no, you know, I don't yeah. know if like a DJ is, yeah, I don't know if if that's the right context or venue to, to fight that battle. I think that the way that you're creating unique art, right? And then working with musicians like Robert Hinky, who is yeah. brilliant. You know, yeah. um, and other collaborators too. You know, uh, M Michael Solinger. Sol Solinger. Solinger. He's a yeah. He's a he produces lasers. It's a laser. No, I know. From Berlin. I, I met yeah. him when I was yeah. in Berlin. I met him, and we talked about um, uh, we talked about uh, Deep Web, and that mm -hmm. was the installation that he he was part of. Yeah. And I, I really like the idea of collaboration um, outside of like the typical structure of mm. a concert or a DJ set where no. you're creating a whole new kind of performance and, uh, and bringing in collaborators. And then you can, then there is no, there is no structure that you're fighting against, mm. right? It's not like, it's, it's not like a DJ set where there's, you know, everybody is expecting the DJ to be the superstar, to be the no. headliner. No. And then you have these other things around it. It's like, no, 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 no. creating a whole new experience that, no. that takes a whole different form. And then, no. Bring in collaborators, and you can be on even footing. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's partly already uh, also happening with A-listers. I mean, for example, Beyonce had one or two of her tours designed by S. Devlin, and that was um, publicly communicated that uh, this is a piece by S. Devlin uh, performed and by Beyonce in her show. So I think it's in some points it's already happening. Or Kanye West is is talking about. Um, the designer from what label is he working with? Uh, forgot clothing label. Like the one designer from that label is also his stage designer. And they, this is a kind of, or they create NFTs together now where a visual guy and the musician is kind of creating an NFT together, stuff like that. So it's, extent, it's, it's that, happening that has, in some areas. That has been the paradigm for a while, like on real big A-list tours. Mm -hmm at least for visual designers like me, 
the the stage designers were always kind of like part of the band and the superstars you know my my uh yeah, yeah. Like a mentor of mine was uh, i toured with tool for a while yeah. and, a, and a mentor of mine was uh was breckenridge haggerty the 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 designer for the visuals now adam the bassist uh, was very interested in the visual arts but in the end it, were, it was these visual designers these artists who were creating the, mm. the looks and the stage show uh and that you know that really influenced me and whenever i go see a, a band i i personally am always looking at the visual design very yeah, interesting like who are these people who did this visual design because yeah. that is that's the art that speaks to me more more so than the music it's the it's yeah. the visual design and the stage yeah, design but, but i think that that's not that's not the norm no, no. Like but, but more, of more, people are going to more and more artists understand it. Like we were touring with Bon Iver, uh, and he was uh, has a works with a lighting designer, uh, Michael Brown, who's also a really good and long term friend of his. And he's very open to give a lot away a lot of control to the lighting designer. He's almost not talking into or giving him directions or anything, because he knows he will make him shine in the end, you know? So we had a lot yeah. of freedom of creating around his songs, of course. Of course, it is the center is the band and the singer, but we are very free to create um, something that makes them look even better. And there uh, was a lot of creative freedom while in other environments, it's like completely already, you know, like predefined and you don't have much wiggle room to kind of bring in your own creativity. and they were also very open to communicate that in an advertisement video, for example, for the tour. So they were they were showing our designs in a small video before and talked about who they work with and so on. So I found that a really nice, nice, oh, very open way of, of collaboration. Of course, the musician is still the headline of this, but he gives a lot of credit uh, to the to the visualist. Absolutely. And I mean, it's really it's when you have that kind of collaboration, then that's what what creates the most impactful stage shows. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you look at some of the most amazing stage shows that have happened, um, yeah. they're always a collaboration. And yeah. I, I think generally the musician, the artists, if they're cool, are more than happy to share that to share that credit. Um, are you guys doing a lot of stage production these days? Like, is that something that you guys are doing? Yeah, we were on a lot of those, but then all these worldwide tours uh, were canceled. Uh, of course. And, uh, yeah, not much came back up. So yeah, there was a lot of stuff in the, in the talking and making. But yeah, for now, all these these uh, these worldwide tours are canceled because the regulations in the different countries are too difficult to handle. They they're of not course. sure if they can make the jump, you know, and if they have to cancel tour stops, it gets very expensive really fast. So a lot of these big tours have been canceled where we were a part of. We were also supposed to be part of the Olympic opening now in Beijing. Uh, and that was canceled and they did a completely different show actually now in the end than they wow. originally were planning. It was supposed to be like a really like super high visibility, pushing the envelope, crazy thing showing off. And now they created this rather toned down um, show um yeah because the situation changed and so on so we that's really frustrating a lot of stuff but at the moment yeah requests are coming but everything is kind of like 
with the brake on, you know, not, not really knowing if that will take off again or not. That's interesting because, you know, I've, the, the pandemic, we've, we've always focused on permanent architectural pieces. So mm. that, that's, you know, that's our focus is, is well, architectural Well, that's pieces. a good idea in Corona because they have longer lead times, right? So you had probably still stuff to do. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it things got canceled, but things came back quickly. And now yeah. things are busier than they've ever been. That's great. And yeah. uh, well, I'm just I'm curious, you know, like what kinds of how is white void um, and kinetic lights? How, how like what is your bread and butter? How do you guys support your operation? Like mm. what's the, the normal job for you guys or do you have one? No, not really. I mean, it's a completely mix of stuff. So we do a lot of rentals. So we have a huge warehouse full of our materials, different winch types, different light types, different uh, standard show designs that we have that we can tour immediately for anything from car launches to, uh, I don't know, conferences, uh, the trade fair stands, stuff like that. So we rent them out for short term, mostly yeah. maximum a week. Um, and then another business model is, of course, we are selling our machines and the light elements and so on. So we do large scale permanent installations like we did the Hacker Sun Club in Las Vegas, for example. The whole oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold on. Ha you did Hacker Sun? Yeah, Hacker Sun, the new ceiling, did you the work kinetic with, ceiling. Did you work with LEDs control? LEDs control. Yeah, yeah. Um, Re Rebecca Sanchez. Know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know her. She's a good friend of mine. Yeah, her. man. Not she's a, she's a good... She did another, the other club there. Not the Hakkasan. It's another club. Souk Club, she did. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was Souk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. she's a good friend of mine, man. And it's, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Like, Vegas is a really good source of projects for like a Definitely. lot of our community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. so there, there we did this whole, um, the whole kinetic ceiling they play every night. And that's also, for example, one thing that I'm really proud about. They advertise it always along the DJ. So it says like, I don't know, uh, Steve Aoki or Tiesto playing under the Hakkasan grid. And the Hakkasan grid is what we created, this grid, we call it, we called it the grid. So, and also the grid has a solo. Before the main DJ comes, we play our three minute intro show every night. So it's our intro uh -huh. show, then everyone's filming that and then the light turns on and then there's the main act DJ. So our uh, light installation has a solo also during every night. And that's uh, really the, cool. the lighting designers there and the, the video guys are really proud to perform it. So we gave them a lot of tools so they can create their own patterns and really integrate it into the rest of, of the lighting and, and the show design they're, they're modifying every night. So that, that was a very good um, project. And another big one we did was this PY1 pyramid. I don't know if you have heard of it of the former owner of uh, Cirque du Soleil, Guy La Liberté. He created this pyramid-shaped venue uh, in Montreal, and then he wanted to tour it. It's called PY1. So we were also involved in all the kinetics in that massive pyramid thing. We created a special winch system for that. Yeah, I'm and looking at then, it now. It's yeah, currently, currently we are working on uh, the ABBA. Uh, the permanent residency of ABBA in London. So we do the whole kinetic ceiling for that. It's huge. Very, so yeah, these, these, cool. these are these are the permanent project things that we're working on. And then we do a lot of design concepts. So we do designs for clubs, for example, some private clubs also. Um, and then the third thing is our our own uh, art show. Uh, the fourth element is our own art shows. 
that we also tour or rent for light festivals or all kinds of occasions wherever it works or we tour them ourselves sometimes and then we have dark so matter of course now this is our own permanent um, space in berlin where we show seven of our pieces permanently yeah i think the ex the concept of an experience space is really like it's really coming of age you know there's there's a yeah. number of experiential spaces that are... uh, how it's popping up i mean we're working on it already for five years or longer i had the idea but now it's becoming really a thing with like team labs starting it off i guess well that's a good thing because what that does mapped, is it... uh, 360 things that's now like all over the place it's crazy yeah but it, it's also making it acceptable and it, it, it people people are open totally. to the idea of funding these types yeah. of spaces so totally. i think that you know in a way it's uh yeah, th there's a lot of the industry that's opening up right now because some of these high-profile installations are are showing, you know, developers and and people who are funding these projects that it's a viable source of revenue. Yeah, and yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. But it's uh, of so course also water watering them down a lot. Yeah, it's a lot that people are like, oh, I saw this kind of experience already, but. Um, it's totally different what kind of content you're you're presenting in it and, and what way you're t telling the story and so on. So of course you have to compete with like lower level kind of um, yeah part parts. Yeah, of there this has kind been of, there uh, has been a, a number of of art spaces like that in San Francisco uh, that have come and gone where they're like, uh, okay, well you know you know what they're trying to do, but it just doesn't quite get there. Yeah. And a lot of them are also mixed up with those Instagram museums, you know, where people just go to take a nice picture oh or, or record their TikTok or something. So sometimes people yeah. also mix our space up with that. Uh, and and we get requests from influencers uh, if they can shoot their stuff there. And uh, they see it more than as, as a background for their own creation. But I see it uh, as these are art pieces on their own. So they will not do stand you, do you let them Do you let them background. come? Do you let them? Do you let them no, come? No, 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 of course not. No, no. <laughs> I mean, they can't, can come as a visitor and, and, and talk about it when they're there or take the selfie or whatever, but we're not really actively supporting it much. I mean, no, of I don't have not. a problem that, with this I mean, culture and I, it's, it's okay, but uh, I wouldn't like close down the venue to help them shoot oh, something. Definitely, or, definitely, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. Yeah. I was talking to, uh, to Moment Factory and, uh, and, and those guys around the, the 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 liminal spaces that they've created out out in like out in the forest. I can't yeah, remember what they're called. Great, a, these are great concepts. Yeah. Oh, great, great. It projects, is, man. Yeah. And those guys, those guys are true artists as well. I really oh, respect yeah. their work. I respect yeah. what they do. Uh, do you have like a lot of collaboration with other people in the industry? You got like stick to your own group, or do you do you reach out and, and collaborate mm. with others? No, we're we're very open for requests, basically. So, I mean, from the very beginning, um, I profit from the interconnectivity of the internet because I myself, I studied, I'm always saying I studied visual arts because I don't want to talk, you know. I, I want yeah. to let my art speak and the visual speak. So I'm not a good seller. You know, I'm not like actively approaching anyone or something. I'm more like showing my stuff and then hoping that like a, like a, trying to catch a fish, you know, that someone would bite and kind of ask me for more. And that's still how it's kind of working today. So we're not very actively in kind of going out to kind of make connections or things like that. But 
a lot of people connect with us and and from that sometimes collaborations arise a lot with production companies you know who have i don't know they have a job for um, i don't know producing the opening of mercedes s class in shanghai or something and they call us like hey you want to put your art piece uh, into our show and stuff like that so this that, yeah. that's the way how collaborations happen but i'm not we're not like reaching out to anyone like hey guys you would like to collaborate on that piece or something like that not not so much apart from of course with musicians that's where i'm more proactive because yeah they, they're a big part of of my shows so i'm actively approaching musicians or composers that i personally like or i'm i'm a fanboy of and then uh, hopefully um, manage to convince them to collaborate with me so in that sense um, I'm, I'm collaborating with others are you collaborating with anybody right now any musicians i'm I, i'm in the process of uh, scouting basically i'm talking to some different ones and i have some some guys i would love to to work with and i'm i'm looking if i can yeah convince one of them yeah i mean your work speaks for itself man i'm sure anybody most people are open to talking and most people are open at least in principle to collaborating with other artists yeah. you know especially if, if those artists are are doing brilliant work you know yeah. it's uh it's i found it's 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 fairly easy to yeah. to reach out if the effort is low to to do collaborations and to to yeah. at least have conversations yeah it's always a balance i mean if if it, if the person you approach is too high profile often they they would love to do something but i'm already booked for the next two years or something like that you know and i'm like okay forget it or they're on on something else and they're all like also creative minds so of course they're also creating their own projects all the time so sometimes that's a problem to find someone who has who is talented enough to kind of do the collaboration on the right level but has still enough time to do so and uh, it's approachable for such a project and that's that's always kind of the the balance act you have to to juggle yeah of course are you working on anything in particular that you can talk about right now that you're I excited want to about? create another big show i mean i'm into big shows and i haven't done anything in i don't know three years not no big show because i was working on on dark matter and this is a lot of small shows there that I also had to create and some of them to recreate. So there was a lot of work in it, but I want to create another bigger, bigger piece um, involving yeah, kinetic technology, but also other stuff. So yeah, I'm currently kind of scoping for opportunity where to show it, who to work with, and when, and so on. I'm really, I'm really fascinated with volumetrics and that that's really the, the area that I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah. We're, we, we have the, the opportunity to do a massive, massive volumetric hanging light piece. Um, nice. It, it would be the largest hanging light sculpture in North in North America, cool. and uh, I'm just thinking about content, how to drive it, like yeah. how to how to structure the pendants that make up the you know the 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 canvas. In the end, what both of us do, what all visual you know sculptural light artists are doing, we're creating canvases. They're yeah. unique canvases, and then you know like for for souk or um you know for for the, the club in vegas that you did it's you know, you've created a canvas it's a moving canvas and then you right. let people yeah. paint on it 
Yeah, true. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like an instrument. I'm always saying we are creating an instrument, a visual instrument, and then we or someone else has to learn how to play it. You know, what, what do you do with kinetic mirrors and lights bouncing off and what patterns do look good and how do you um, arrange them and uh, what colors working and stuff like that. And yeah, I'm, I'm on the site always like on your website. Um, yeah, these volumetric displays especially, I mean, what kind of patterns do you create? What speed should they move through space uh, at? And, uh, and what kind of ambience do you want to like get the people into that are kind of looking at it or passing by or standing below it? Well, you talk a lot about, about, you know, um, about narrative in, in mm. your work and yeah. I think narrative is, is a core part of all art or, mm. or it, it should be, you know, and for yeah. us, the narrative is emotional. It yeah. really is creating an atmosphere and a vibe. And I think that's why our work has, has fit so well with architecture because mm. in architecture, in placemaking, you're really just setting a vibe yeah, and uh, totally. you're set, you're like creating an atmosphere that people that affects people's emotions when they're in the space. Yeah. And um, so the content that we create is very, it's algorithmic, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's generative, it's math, yeah. it's beautiful yeah. math that expresses on these canvases. Um, but in the end, it's an emotional message. And, uh, yeah. and that's the, the type of content that, you know, I, I find most beautiful anyway. Um, it's, it's this non-contextual messaging. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. doesn't really work very well for advertising, but it, you know it's for as an art as an as art. It's uh, that's the type of art that that really resonates with me, and uh, the the art that you guys create is is also very uh, very algorithmic. You know, it, it's it's beautiful math. It's math in motion. Yeah. Um, I think I think it could work with advertisement actually if people would be more open to use it that way. So you know we it, we are yeah we one of the projects we did was for a car, the car company Hyundai we did a kind of volumetric um, like a point cloud that we activated with lasers from the outside yeah and uh, was kind of about communicating their design principles which are of course surfaces shaped by the wind waves whatever car companies are using to kind of describe the surface of the the car shapes. And there was also yeah. this discussion like, okay, and then uh, I was like, okay, do we need to show a car? You know, is that really necessary? Because we want to talk about your design language, not about the car, but about the abstract thing, the design language. So first yeah. uh, they were like, yeah, of course we need a car and so on. And then I convinced them to not show the car, but kind of charge people with the emotion of the shape of a car, but not by showing a car. And yeah. also then the next thing was like, yeah, where to put the logo? I was like, why do you want to put the logo? You know, give the, when the people leave, give them a little booklet where you explain the, what this was about and where you can make the link to your car or something like that. And first, so was this, for, was, this for a, was this for a physical installation, like a trade show, or was this a, like a commercial or a TV commercial? Uh, it was, no, no, it was a physical installation, but, uh, in uh, for um, the Art Week and uh, what is it called uh, the Milan? Uh, is it called Milan Art Week? No, the Milan Design Week, I think. You know where yep, yep, brands right. show themselves in a kind of different light. So it's not about showing the car; it's about showing 
that you are related to high-end design and that you want to inspire people who care about this kind of um, qualities. So it's not about showing the car, but it's showing the brand and, and giving the people an idea about what the brand stands for. And so um, it was more like an art experience to represent the brand. And in yeah. the end, it, it worked super well. We didn't have the car and we didn't have the logo. And and people were kind of curious about what is it and got inspired. And so and then in the end, it was revealed that this is uh, by Hyundai. So that well, worked really well. So it's advertisement, but not really advertisement. You know, we were we were enhancing the 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 image that people have of this brand but by not showing the product basically yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i think that you're fortunate to have been able to work with a brand that was open to that concept and i think yeah. also from an advertising perspective there's something to be said for for mystery right mm -hmm. and like a grand reveal because it make it captures people's imagination i think when people are beaten over the head with a logo uh, and and a, and a blatant buy this product message people uh, tune it out i think that totally. especially in our generation you know this uh, this day and age now people are just so so sick of advertising totally they are i mean you can you can see it with the whole tiktok generation and how advertisement works there uh, you have to be funny you have to be creative you shouldn't be too glossy you should be real it's a totally different way of how products are presented adapted to how these kids are thinking today. I think that's fascinating. I'm not in, not much interested in it because I don't like, I'm not interested in creating content that way, but it's interesting no, to either. see how brands are adapting to that instead of like before when we had to adapt to how the brands wanted to present advertise, they were forcing it down our throats because we couldn't escape it because it was in the middle of our movie that we wanted to watch or stuff like that, you know, where, advertisement right. was pushed at you when you couldn't escape it now it's the total opposite they have to be funny and interesting and everything to catch the attention of the young people if they just Absolutely. are glossy and perfect and their kid is like not even seeing that while they're swiping that's how i when i'm on the phone i don't see any ads it's full of it but i'm blending them perfectly out if you ask me yeah, after well, one day ad what, what ads did you see you know it's like an ad blocker in my head i, I don't see any of them but on TikTok, they're, they're, they're making them so engaging that you watch them because they're funny or clever or you're like, oh, Gucci is doing a good job here with these two grandmas wearing their newest uh, coats, you know, like it's clever and you admire Gucci for being so open and so on. Well, that's that's the evolution of advertising. I think that like you yeah. know, advertising has to evolve with culture and culture has definitely, man, culture is so quickly evolving now man it's really yeah. crazy to see yeah. where the world is with like the rapid evolution of communication you know mm. what i mean and and all of this like QAnon, trump like it, it's kind of like the the collective consciousness of humanity has gone off the rails and we're like yeah. observing this this really weird evolution in in uh communication and the mentality of of the masses right mm. in these two like crazy ways yeah. what will come out of that you know it's, uh, it's like we, we were discussing how <laughs> go ahead yeah no i was just saying it's almost like we're waiting for the big reset you know because everyone's yeah. like where's this going this is not right everything is strange can we kind of like you know like 
make a cut and kind of uh, order, make a new order and start fresh or something like that. I think it almost feels like that to everyone. Yeah, of course, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's like things will continue to evolve totally. and they will evolve like, you know, over time and, and organically, yeah. but things are just evolving and changing so fast. It's really uh, crazy. I mean, it makes I, me I, wonder what, what is the next yeah. cult, like cultural paradigm, you know, like, you know how the, the rave culture was kind of like a cultural <clears throat> paradigm that changed the way people thought about music and art. Yeah. So was, so was jazz. So mm. was Burning Man, you know, Burning yeah, Man true. was represented like a, an evolution in, in paradigm. It's like, what is the next, what's the next wave? Yeah. I mean, a lot is from gaming now, I guess the gamification of everything and this metaverse that everyone is talking about. And, and the funny thing is, I just wanted to say, I read an article about from someone who was like, Hey, we're waiting for this virtual reality being good enough to really want to live in for so many years. I mean, I studied in Chicago in 2001 in the virtual reality class, kind of where they were already meditating about where this would go, but the resolution was shit and the glasses were lagging and all this kind of stuff. And now it's here. And this guy was writing, well, but now I'm actually not interested in it anymore. Uh, I kind of get where it's going. And I actually think we don't need this, but I'm, I'm aware that the kids will do it anyhow, you know, because oh, yeah. they can and they want to push the envelope and they want to go further and so on. But he was like, I don't think it all makes any sense anymore. And it will not really bring humanity further in a, in an important way. It will just be, be done because it can be done. But why do I want to, or why should I live in virtual reality? And I actually had the same thinking because when I was young, I was always saying, yeah, and when I'm old, I will live in virtual reality and it will be great and and kind yeah. of like following the matrix idea and so on. But now I'm like, I prefer to go to the forest, you know, like instead of walking in a simulation of a forest with a perfect sunset and stuff like that. So yeah. it's, it's, it's probably an age happen. thing also. No, I think I think it'll happen. But I also think it's 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 age coupled with desensitization to digital. Like we mm. we basically do live in a simulation for most of our lives. Like it doesn't matter that it's not strapped to our face. We stare yeah. at a screen or True. a little screen for most of our most of our day. You know, and yeah. I think that like we already know what that where that road leads, and that's fine. You know, like virtual will always be part of our experience. Mm. Um, it's becoming more and more a part of like how humans experience life but i think that true balance comes through the appreciation of the physical and the real and nature and like i mm. i'm the same way man like you can see my climbing shoes behind me like i'm obsessed yeah, with yeah, <laughs> with climbing and going outdoors outdoor sports and it's yeah. it's what keeps me sane you know and there's no virtual experience that can replace that that is a physical experience living in a physical world yeah. Well, not yet, I guess. I mean, that that's the thing. When this conversion is happening between that simulation will become indistinct, indistinct, indistinctively. Or how do you say in English? Indistinguishable. But I think and, that's and a long indistinguishable way. from 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 the real world. Then all of this will work. Like the like the guy in the Matrix when he eats the steak and he says like, "Hey, as long as it's juicy and tasty in my mouth and I don't I don't feel the difference." That it's not a real yeah. steak. I'm happy, you know. So, I think in that moment when when virtual reality becomes like that, then 
there's no discussion about it anymore because it doesn't matter if you're in the real forest or in a simulated forest, it will be the same experience. But, um, but then the question, the question is then it's like, are we even the same species? You know, like <laughs> I think that that I mean, you're right, but I think that's a, that is a long way, a long way off from yeah. where we are almost with like yeah. goggles that are, you know, really good goggles. Uh, and that, that takes care of your eyesight. Like all right, you mm. can see things that look very real, but it's like life and reality is so much more than what yeah, you yeah. see. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of all your senses. And yeah. that, that's a long way off. Yeah, I almost feel sad that it takes so long because I, like, I don't know, it was already the second wave or whatever of, of virtual reality when Jaron Lanier was kind of on the, on the forefront of those developments and had this kind of... Um, yeah, I was musing about where this would go and so on. I was such a strong believer in the nineties. I was such a strong believer that we're that's 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 near, you know, that it was twenty years and we'll be there. And now it's it's more than twenty years later, and the technology is uh, didn't make the leap wasn't as big as I thought it would it would do. I mean, it's already crazy what they can do in games and so on, but is still not not far enough so that 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 will still be i don't know another 20 30 40 years maybe until this is really really gamer? convincing i was play... I, I spent a couple of years of my life only on that and and smoking weed <laughs> but uh, that that's uh yeah that's, it was in the 90s so i was playing playstation one and like nintendo and all this kind of stuff like crazy but then, yeah, from time to time I play, but not so much anymore because I'm not interested anymore in exploring the fantasy of someone else. I want to create yeah. myself. So I, yes. would, I would love to create my own game or my own environment and, and experience that. But I'm not so much interested in all those quests, you know, either shoot all those people or collect all that stuff or do this or that. In my free time, I like to kind of relax and... Um, I like those games with these kind of walkthroughs or actually when I play a game, I mostly just walk around and check it out. I'm not so interested. Yeah, yeah. In the, like I was playing a, um, cyberpunk with a friend of mine and I was just walking around those streets and driving the car until the sun comes up and like all this kind of stuff. I like the experience, but I'm not so much into the, into the action of it that I need to win something or find something or compete with that. Maybe, or maybe, those maybe things, that you know? is, Maybe that is the metaverse, right? And I think that it, it actually opens up a really interesting opportunity where it can be like, maybe we create content that's not only in the physical world, but maybe your installations are mirrored virtually. And, and that's something that we're exploring, right? Is, is taking the installations that we build mm. and, and, you know, they all exist as 3D models anyway. Yeah. So taking those three models and putting them into some of these like environments that are mm. building themselves as the metaverse, you know, yeah. where you just, <laughs> you, we take this big light sculpture that we're building and we, yeah. we add that into, uh, into some virtual world. Mm. Yeah. But then again, I think I, mean, I always like to explore the properties of each tool or environment to the maximum. So what's possible and, 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 with my physical installations, I'm, I'm pushing as much as I can in the physical environment in terms of size, complexity, what can I handle financially and so on. But in the, in the virtual environment, those possibilities are basically unlimited. That's also a big point that I'm criticizing about those, like 
I always tell the same story when there was this the, the Corona peak and they were they had this Burning Man virtual reality thing. I was like, okay, that sounds weird. I'm gonna check it out, and I I checked it out. And for me, that it wasn't was that the cool. biggest. That was the biggest fail for me that came out of this. We need to digitize now everything, and we do this XR whatever kind of simulations of real thing in virtual reality. Because I walk around there in an empty desert, no one was there. The music came from somewhere far away, and then they have these huge sculptures, like they have them in reality at Burning Man. But in virtual right. reality, it's not impressive if I have a 20-foot person standing there because I can do that with two clicks, you know? And why, know. Is there, why is there still sand on the ground and why do I have a ground at all? Because if you spin yeah. the Burning Man spirit into virtual reality, uh, everything you do at Burning Man is not only about looking at those things, but you're in a different state of mind. Uh, you're taking drugs, you're hugging people, like all those things that, on the on the human level what burning man is about that doesn't work if you just transfer the the look of it one to one into virtual reality for my for my taste it should have been totally not in a desert and there shouldn't have been uh, uh gravity at all and it should be like spinning further all those sculptures that are evoking a trip or stuff like that you know everything people build there is like looks out of a fever dream so why not yeah. create create the fever dream instead, you know, and like immerse myself in the possibilities of that medium because Burning Man is pushing the limits of what I can build in a desert and how crazy I can go. What tools well, I can Man bring to the desert. In the desert. They put Burning Man in the desert as a blank canvas. Exactly. And it's like you don't need that canvas once you enter the virtual world. Yeah, exactly. That that that's the sum up of it. So I was so yeah. disappointed by it and how stupid those people can be who are that I couldn't even understand that those are the same people, that they don't understand that, that the great thing they create in reality, you cannot transfer it one-to-one into, into virtual reality. You have to find the equivalent of what is the representation of that craziness in the desert in, in a virtual environment that's limitless, basically. And your canvas is... Not, whatever you know <laughs> but yeah. it's not a flat flat surface of sand but i also don't have a solution to it what it should look like but i was i, f- I was laughing my ass off because that was so wrong felt so wrong i know me. i i saw it i saw it too and i was also i was yeah. a little bit underwhelmed i think it's just it's not <laughs> quite there yet so have you have you been to burning man no unfortunately not i'm just dreaming of it since i don't know 20 years already but I was always thinking I, if I should go, I should create something there. But then people said I should better go first to completely understand it before trying to create something for it. It's probably I a agree good with idea. That. Yeah. I, I think that just going, I mean, this might be a good year, man. Like I, yeah. I've been, I've been many times, but it's in, it's in our backyard yeah, and it is, it's, it's fun to create something, but it's almost like in order to create something, you almost need to have, you need to have like that patron, somebody who's willing to fund your idea. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. now, especially, there's a lot more people who are willing to fund those ideas mm-hmm. um, for the sake of art. And it is, it is a canvas. So it's, uh, I can totally see you guys doing something out there. Yeah, I like big, you know. And what, what bigger can there be like an empty desert space? <laughs> you know, so you can. Yeah. It's no limit to size, basically. The limit is your budget, probably, in the end. 
Hey, so you know what's happening out there recently that that really has captured my imagination? Um, it's happening everywhere, but out on the playa, it looks really amazing, is drone shows. No. The idea, the concept of pixels that move. So mm. it's like a volumetric installation, but instead of static pixels, no. you've got a cloud of moving pixels. That's fascinating to me. No. And I've always wanted to, to create content for that. No. I mean, Adam, that was the obvious next step for my uh, kinetic stuff at some point. But then I decided to stay with uh, uh, one technology because, yeah, I wanted to concentrate on perfecting that instead of like branching out. But yeah, drones would be really fun to work with. And there's still so many things to do. I mean, you you can also use them probably in different ways. Than, I mean, Studio Drift uh, show they also did at uh, Burning Man, they already did that. You know, they used it as a swarm instead of just using it as this is a pixel like others uh, did before so there's so many more possibilities still out there i think to what to create with that well i just see i see all the drone shows most of them are just garbage you know it's like yeah, they but, make a guitar in the air yeah, it's, like, it's, it's a guitar in the air horrible. it's like <laughs> yeah there's so much potential there though yeah. man like of having a like a display for abstract content Mm, and not yeah. like making like you know a top hat in the sky but like yeah, yeah. creating a real moving living cloud that you can run light patterns through that's yeah, that's yeah. fascinating to me yeah. i think there will come a lot of more stuff i mean there's more like more more and more companies also who have big amounts of drones i mean obviously you need like 1000 or up to do like cool stuff so and more and more oh, yeah. companies have those amounts so yeah, yeah. And, and there's good softwares already like to export your 3d animation automatically to drone show so it's getting getting easier i think to to do those things do you guys work in an environment that you created or do you work with existing software to drive your light patterns yeah we work with i mean it's both i mean we work with touch designer which is a software but it's, it's a toolbox i mean touch designer by itself doesn't do anything but it allows you to prototype whatever you need so we have our own software we call it klc but it's uh it's based on touch designer so we create it in touch designer and we modify it there so we use I a, actually a, i, I yeah. met one of your touch designer programmers last time i was in uh oh, yeah. last time i was in was in berlin he um the fuck was his name daniel Def Delfobo? daniel Delfobo. yeah 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 mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a cool guy, man. He he told me like he told me uh, about the process and how you guys use Touch Touch Designer. Yeah. And I was just like, of course, of course, they're using Touch Designer. We, yeah, we do great. too. It's for... great for it's great for prototyping, but it's yeah, it's not optimal if you want to create a real standalone software. But since the whole thing is always in in process and in development, it's a good environment to to continue to prototype in. Yeah, we we use Smode actually. Smode for mm -hmm. a lot of what we do. It's French software, but it's yeah. we've actually we've worked with the developers to to mm -hmm. develop the features that we need to do the installations that we're working yeah. on. And I really hope that so we're doing a, a Burning Man installation this year in mm -hmm. conjunction with uh, Mamu Mani. He's he's like a a, a architect from the from the UK, mm -hmm. and uh, Studio Drift is going to be part of that. And mm -hmm. I am really hoping that I can work with Studio Drift and um, they'll allow me to run patterns, like to paint on their swarm, because I would really like to, uh, to bring that swarm concept into Smode and use Smode to generate the algorithmic 
um, light patterns that, that yeah. are driven on that, that surface. So who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Burning Man is a great place for collaboration, man. And there's a lot of really cool artists doing a lot of really unique things that you can be part of. And a lot of them are very well-funded. Mm. Yeah, so, I, I saw there's all these camps by billionaires, basically, <laughs> who have their kind of own like, little village there and then funding artists to create a pavilion or something like that. That's yep. cool. Yeah, there are. There are. And I'm sure I'm sure that you know some of those billionaires who might throw you some Not money yet. to uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe well, someone I mean, be surprised. Uh, I was gonna say a lot of people a lot of people um a lot of people go to Burning Man and you know a lot of those those wealthy people are looking to make a statement and it's yeah, no. you know, it, it's 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 kind of a it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I look at that and I'm like, well that's that's kind of what is ruining Burning Man, but it's also what is pushing Burning Man. It's driving to, it. To, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's hard to say, like if it's a, if it's a net positive or net negative. <laughs> it's probably both. I mean, the, 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 the sculptures and the installations are getting bigger and more elaborate and so on, but of course that costs more money. So if you need more money and needs funding and funding comes from, yeah someone who wants something back for it and so on. I mean, this is, that's the kind of the, yeah, the, the closed loop that these things have. So it's, it's, yeah, it's good and bad, of course, at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, some of these things are, are purchased before they ever even get built for Burning Man. Yeah, so like you'll have, yeah. you'll have Las Vegas and Vegas, you know, some developer in Vegas, pays for somebody's Burning Man sculpture. And then as soon as it's done, it goes right to Las Vegas and gets installed. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Mule Wolf also has their location there, right? They have some Burning Man sculptures in the parking lot, I think. They do. I actually yeah. went and visited. I, vi I visited their, uh, their, their uh, the hell is it called? It's uh, Area 51. Yeah, Area, Area 51, I think, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting place. You know, when I, when I went and I saw the, I saw the installation, it's not just Meow Wolf. It's like Meow Wolf is one part of it. And then there's mm -hmm. all of these other uh, activations and, and installations galleries in that area. Yeah. And, um, some of my good friends, like I was, I was looking at this installation. I'm like, that looks like play modes work. And I texted, mm -hmm. I texted my friend at play mode. I'm like, guys, did you do this? And they're like, yeah, we did. And I'm like, your name is nowhere on it, but why <laughs> yeah. is your name like on it? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, I think they do have a, a place where they credit the artists, but it's mm -hmm. like when I saw that, I was just like, man, they're, the, the artists should be first and foremost. Their names yeah, should be true. right out there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Play Modes is a really cool group, man. You uh, – I don't know if you, uh, they're out of Barcelona. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they, yeah, yeah, they create. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you do? Yeah, yeah, of course. I follow them on Instagram. I know everyone, I think. <laughs> Following yeah. everyone. <laughs> it's, it's a small, it's a small world. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's very small. Yeah. It's, we all it's really, like we all a really thin layer around the planet, basically. And everyone is kind of connected there with everyone. I also saw that you interviewed, uh, Nick from the Mind Buffer project, they have this uh, 3D sculpture thing they built. And uh, yeah, I, I met him here in Berlin. They built a sculpture here in a, in a place just like, I don't know, 500 meters from here. 
Um, they yeah. built that the moth, a, this moth uh, sculpture. Really cool thing. He's he's a cool guy. He is a cool guy, yeah. and that sculpture is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Insane. <laughs> There's so much stuff in it. <laughs> it, it is, man. He's tightly, he's a, tightly he's, packed. Yeah. And did you know that he did both the mechanical and the electrical engineering? Yeah, for yeah, I know. I met him. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's crazy. And it looks, uh, the quality is really good of it too. You know, it doesn't look like a prototype or anything. It looks really like a product, really good quality. It does, I was man. Just, that, I was just another... afraid for them that uh, they really quickly get copied from some Chinese company to kind of do that too. <laughs> this is always the problem with those art projects. Yeah, I don't know if he's trying to make a product out of it though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's trying to make a product. I talked to him at length about that. Yeah. But someone else will, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> that's always the problem. Have you, have you faced that? Have people, of have course. people ripped off your. Uh, everyone in China is 10,000s of people copying our stuff. Like literally like yeah, every good. light object we come out with three months later, they have the exact same thing. They even copied our whole trade fair stand once for one trade fair in, uh, I don't know, Guangzhou or somewhere. And the, the background of their of their trade fair stand was a five by three meter picture that I personally took of one of our installations. I mean, oh it's crazy. God. Yeah, they copy everything, but you have to take that as a compliment, I guess. My ideas are probably pretty good. Otherwise they wouldn't do that. You can buy winches, uh, light elements, everything uh, also from China. Of course, the yeah, quality not, is not, not the same, but uh, the quality is yeah. not the same. No, we no. were looking into, um, <clears throat> You know, you know, kinetic rain. Do you know that installation, kinetic rain? It's in the uh, well, Shanghai no, this, airport. This is from my professor Joachim Salter from Artcom. Yeah, this is where well, I, actually, I studied. I studied with him in art school. He was my professor. So I know, I know a couple of the engineers, the the, yeah. the kinetic engineers that were part of that project. Yeah. And we were we were thinking about doing a. We were talking to a client about doing a kinetic installation, um, not too long ago. Mm. And we were researching motors, and the only motors that would be suitable were yours. Mm. And then there's this other German company that makes servos that are quiet enough to use. Beckhoff. It's Beckhoff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Beckhoff. So yeah. no one else. There's no one yeah. else. You can't get them from China. Yeah. You can't get yeah. those, you can't buy those Chinese winches. They're too loud. Yeah, also the quality. I mean, the cable is fucked. If you do a permanent installation, it's it's after one month, it's completely done. You have to change the cable. So our right. stuff is made for like permanent permanent installs running up to, I don't know, 12 hours a day continuously. And uh, the running parts, are all the moving parts are specified to last at least a year. So that's, a, of course, a different level of quality. But if you want to do a show or a one night party or whatever, use the Chinese system, it kind of looks okay, probably, but it just doesn't have the durability and also no safety features. We also, we are in Germany, so we have to include a lot of safety stuff, you know, because moving things above heads is potentially quite dangerous. So we have to have a very high standard in that. But then people in other countries, they don't care about this. You know, one time there was a guy from Iran. He wanted to buy a system from us. And I explained him why it's so expensive because we have all these safety functions. in. And then he was like, safety? What are you talking about? I'm from Iran. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wasn't convincing to him because it just didn't matter. So I had no arguments why my system is so expensive compared to others. So it, it, it always depends on what quality you need for what reason. 
if you want to do something simple, probably a Chinese winch is okay. If you want like the ABBA show, for example, that we're now doing the install or the Hakasan, you could not use a Chinese system. It would be broken no. after a really short time and just not on that level. But then again, you know, Chinese guys, they also make my iPhone, so they can do quality. So eventually they, they will can. catch up. You know what I've always found is that Chinese, China can copy hardware, mm. but not the software. design, the not content, design, yeah. what, what goes, all right. So say somebody copies yeah. your wind, like makes a thing, mm. 90%, I don't, I want to say this in a way that's tactful or at least, not, at least, <laughs> yeah, but at least they're the clever. Content. They also copy the content, my arrangement. The content you know? is not there. <laughs> The content and the design is not there, right? So even if yeah. somebody copied your system, man, who is making the content? Yeah, yeah. Who is making the content? Yeah. And the, the content is what makes these art pieces stand out, right? Mm. It makes them beautiful pieces of work rather than yeah. just a random, like a collection of blinking hardware, yeah. right? We can all put together LEDs. Like if there's infinite LED art on the playa and 99% yeah. of it is garbage. Because yeah, the programming yeah. and the design is not there, yeah, um, true. and right. when you when you look at you know LEDs are LEDs, but there's there's a <laughs> what you're doing, what we're doing, and what you see you know on the facade of a convenience store where it says mm -hmm. blink 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 open. You know, it's like it's not even the yeah. same thing, yeah. but it's using the same technology. So yeah. it really comes down to content and design. You can't copy mm. that as easily. No, no, they're not copying it, but, but learning. I mean, I also teach sometimes at uh, art school in, in China and I have friends there and they're on the right level. Like the young kids coming out of art school today, they know design and they have, they even have their own style that eventually we will copy in a couple of yeah. years from now. Like Japan was in the nineties on the forefront of every consumer product that we wanted to have um, with Sony and also other things. I think China will be soon because they're such a big country and it's, it's mainly about education and how you get, how, where you get your inspiration from and, and they're studying abroad and they're studying um, um, worldwide and then including their own kind of culture into that and, and, and doing things in a different way. Like, color schemes for example they are choosing or um, shapes and things that are different from what what we are used to and what we are doing so i think the next generation is really we will we will look up to them at some point so i have no illusions about it it was a good time while they were looking up to us but they're they're up to speed i think already that's interesting so you're teaching a school you're, you're teaching at an art school in china yeah, sometimes I give lectures, like uh, or workshop, one week workshop, or I just meet with professors or something like that. So I know what's going on and how it has changed over the last ten years. So first time I was in Shanghai was maybe fifteen years ago, or something like that. No, that's yeah. not true. That's that's longer. That was two thousand. It's almost twenty years ago. I was there the first time. So it changed so much, and there's so much up to speed on on everything. And I think they're they're good to go for the next round. This this can be interesting. You while you were asking, where's the next kind of big push coming from? It's probably from China. You know, we just don't see it coming yet. But 
they will come up with stuff that has not, nothing to do with what, what we are used to or what we are socialized with. Also in terms of music and so on, they were kind of kind of absorbing everything that, that we had to offer. And I think now they will kind of digest it and then come up with their own version of something or their totally alternative kind of thing. Well, it would be thing. interesting to see. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the other question is, is there like the creative freedom to do something completely new mm -hmm. in that political environment. Do you know what I mean? Like, are they able? That's the question, what they're doing um, politically and uh, how that's in, in, uh, influencing the society there. That's definitely something that's unclear at this moment that I'm also very unhappy about, that this openness that China had the, for the last years and I was traveling there a lot and I just felt like almost like home and now it feels so far away again and they kind of closing off a little bit so I don't know if that's continuing like that but you know they're like their bubble is so big it's probably enough to kind of you know like breed inside the bubble and create new new things and I think as long as people stay inside that bubble they're kind of relatively free to create in a certain way especially if yeah. it's like visual expression or technological visual developments or stuff like that i think in that sense they're relatively free to do whatever works so i'm in any in any case like expecting interesting things to come from there the only question is if we can participate you know if they're closing off that much then that's a problem and I hope we are, man. I hope we are because yeah, I want to be part of it because I really hate that separating countries from each other and stuff. I really don't like it. Do you travel? Do you travel abroad much? Yeah, I was traveling like 100 days a year minimum so far. And oh my God. during Corona, almost nothing. <laughs> so I'm really kind of a bit on a standstill and uh, want to get out there again. At some point, it was almost too much traveling, but I also really enjoy it because it gives you a different perspective on your own country. And that's why I think everyone should travel a lot, even if it's to weird countries or countries that have different political system or opinions or whatever. It's, it's also open up. It's, it's open up your opening up your mind about your own country and your own society. And you get a different view. Like I, I when I, the first country like far away that I went was when I studied in Chicago, I've never been anywhere outside of Europe before. And there was also 9-11 happening when I was in Chicago in art school. Like I saw on the TV, the burning towers and we were evacuated because there's Sears Tower next to yeah. uh, the university. And I saw America in that moment. And I also had a look at my own country from far away and how small it actually is and insignificant in the play of of the world. And, and that gave me a really interesting new perspective on where I come from and how German I actually am, because I always, uh, I don't like Germany. I have nothing to do with these people. I want to be a world citizen or I think America is great or always wanted to be somewhere else. But then when I was somewhere else for a longer time, I got a totally new perspective on my own country and figured out how much German, of course, I am. Like you cannot get rid of this. You know, you're social. No, you, you always, we all, we, we all come from somewhere. You know, yeah, it's funny. Exactly. I, I come from the other side of the United States yeah. and it's less dramatic than German to the United States, but it's definitely, it was definitely a culture shock when I moved to the West Coast. Yeah. And now I've been here for 10, 12 years 
and I still know like I am from New England. Yeah. I'm from Boston. That yeah, is yeah. who I am because yeah. I grew up there. Yeah. You can't get rid of that. Yeah, it's the same for me, even even living in Berlin and I'm from the countryside in the very south of Germany, Switzerland border. Even that is it's 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 a different society, a different way how people are thinking. And that's just inside of a really small country, you know. So that's that's already interesting. But then like having friends in China and having lived there for a while and being there frequently and so on, I also kind of can understand their way of thinking a little bit. So not everything is as black and white as it's portrayed in our Western media, how that country is and why they're doing things, how they do them and so on. I can a little bit understand that if you're inside of that country, and you have a different view on things and not both of it is only bad or only good. Uh, as you, as you sure. can see with your own country, you know, one guy is ruling the country and everyone thinks, oh, what is America doing? And they're bad. And then it, there's another guy and all, all of a sudden America is cool again. I mean, America is always both. And China right. is also also both of it. And, and you cannot see it this like um, monothematic and, and just in one way. That's what I learned from from traveling it a lot. Like the, the, the main thing I know about China is that I don't understand it at all, but I'm I'm okay yeah. with that. They're just different. They're not they're not yeah. worse or they're not bad or they're not anything. They're very, very different. So it's really hard to comprehend what what is their aim or also if you look at uh, what uh, russia is doing at the moment this is not random or this is not there's something behind this it's not only a, a, a negative attack on our western system they also want to be heard but and and want to um kind of um, how to say like uh, make us understand there's a different way of thinking that and we don't understand it if that's the only yeah. thing that we take away from it so those things so I think are the not travel not... travel gives you perspective yes right? exactly. and, and it's that's perspective to understand yeah. multiple sides yeah. Yeah, of, totally. of a story yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it is very important yeah travel is and that, travel and is that uh, i miss and i also think it's a problem because people are now so isolated in their own countries it also they also keep too much to themselves and kind of cook in their own juice instead of like kind of expanding their mind. And if it's only going to Spain in summer for the beach holiday, you meet Spanish guys and you're you're open to another culture, and that's right. not happening at the moment. That's why this kind of radicalization is kind of happening all over the planet. I think traveling, open traveling, will will really help to kind of maybe resolve those conflicts a little bit. I hope so, man. I really Getting do. Getting very political here. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think travel definitely helps. Yeah. Speaking of which, I will be in Berlin in the not too distant future. So Great. we should, when I'm there, we should go out and get a drink. I would love oh, to definitely. hang out in person. Definitely. Let me know. Yeah. And of course, check out uh, Dark Matter if you want. And uh, yeah, welcome to come to my studio. Hopefully in summer, because in summer Berlin is great, and winter it's just great. <laughs> no, 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 I know, but we're also we're almost we're almost through winter, and I think yeah, yeah. that uh, yeah, I probably will come towards at least the uh, at least the spring. So yeah, spring is okay too. Yeah, everything after around May, June, then then it starts to get really good. Yeah.
Cool, man. Well, let's plan on it. Super. Let's plan on, uh, on hanging yeah. out when I'm in uh, when I'm in Berlin. And if you're ever on the West Coast, wherever on the West Coast, I you gotta so. let me know, yeah. and I'll I'll come out and I'll come out and visit. Great. Yeah, I really hope to come to the U.S. soon again because I've also go normally like three, four, five times a year, and I really miss that. Yeah. You will. I mean, things are opening up again and events are starting so. to happen yeah, again and yeah, yeah. you know it's uh business it will be is, interesting maybe it's, it everything comes back with double force that could be one option that would be really exciting or we're feeling it we're feeling that double everything is starting to roll and uh, <laughs> i'm sure it will just continue to 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 snowball so good to hear well listen dude i'm really stoked that we got to talk i feel like i know you so much better now and, um, nice to yeah get to meet you. Absolutely, I'll reach 